Well, hello and welcome back. Yes, it is myself, David Connolly. I'm sure you'd forgotten who exactly I was. Sorry I've been away, but uh, it's been quite a fun and busy time. I have to say that uh, it was great to see uh, Diego, uh, Paula and family at the beginning of May here in my own Bonnie, Scotland. It's amazing. We'd never actually met face to face before, but there we were. And it was like we were old friends. It was really nice to have them here. And I am already planning a little visit to Sicily, uh, where I think they enjoy going to as well. It's, um, well, I'd just like to say it was absolutely brilliant to see you all here. And, uh, and let's hope it's not 10 years before we meet in the flesh again. So before I get too emotional, um, what other news do I have for you before we actually hit the news? Well, the team from Edinburgh University, the students Alex, Alex, Tom and Colton, I've been working alongside myself and Dougie and uh, looking at what was known as Yadley Stone Circle. This is up in the Lammermuirs in East Lothian, Scotland. Well, this is where it's got a bit odd as well because apart from driving rain, driving blizzards and uh, terrible fog, we've been surveying, measuring, taking readings, uh, looking at uh, all sorts of uh, sites in the area And we're not even sure if it's a stone circle now. We have three options. It's a stone circle with very small stones. It's a cairn, and the stones are actually from a kerb, or it is a roundhouse. The enjoyable thing about this is the discovery. Nobody had ever looked at this since, wait for it, 1913. So well done to these guys for taking the initiative and working with yours truly in order to investigate this mystery. This is real archaeology happening and I expect that in the next month there will be a report which of course I'll be telling you about that you'll go and have a look at and see what we've been up to. And they're also off to the student uh, conference down in New York where they will be presenting their findings. Well, that's enough about that. I'm sure I could wax lyrical about all the things we're up to just now. We're looking at uh, some hill forts. We are investigating the rough wooing of Mary Queen of Scots in Scotland by uh, looking at the bullet holes in a church in Harrington. And, well, there's just so much on. But you don't want to hear about that. You want to hear about the archaeology news. Am I right? Yes, well, sit back, get comfortable, get your tea on, maybe a cup of coffee, a biscuit, why not have some cake? And uh, here we go. This news is brought to you, of course, in partnership between Stonepages, Mallow Stonepages, and the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources website, alongside Past Horizons website. All the stories have been collected from various sources and to view details in each story, including that all-important source, well, you're just going to have to go along to the Stonepages website at news.stonepages.com. What have we got? Well, we've got beaker burials uncovered in Scotland and a melting pot with powerful women. Could that be the Indus civilization? The making of Europe is unlocked by new DNA testing and... The face of an ancient Maltese woman is reconstructed. Neanderthals, it turns out, were, you wait for it, right-handed. And heading to Turkey, um, we've got 40,000 boxes of Neolithic artefacts locked up in a Turkish warehouse. There's astronomical alignments at Peruvian pyramids. And Neolithic Scotland is investigated in Scotland. 
5,000 years ago, it turns out that the Scandinavians were using fertilizers. And in Oman, an ancient burial chamber, a massive chamber, has been found. We finish off with a rather controversial uh, piece about the first Australians being migrants. Human remains in earthen vessels have been found dating back to the Bronze Age Beaker Settler period. Uh, this is at Dunn's Law in southeast Scotland. The finds are estimated to be four and a half thousand years old. Simon Brassey from Scottish Water, a specialist engineer on the environment team, said that while stripping back the topsoil to prepare the ground for new water mains, the team of archaeologists uncovered significant finds adjacent to the Dunn's Law Fort and camp in the Scottish borders. The finds include the cremated remains of a woman and other fragments of human bones of at least two other adults and a juvenile. Up to seven earthenware vessels from the Beaker era were also revealed, decorated with comb impressions with different geometric patterns on them. A stone axe was also found. The burial pit involved a complex construction process and probably encompasses several different periods. A deeper pit was first dug, then two small shallow scoops excavated at the base of the pit where the vessels containing the possessions of the Beaker dead were placed and then covered over. Large angular stones were also sunk into the pit. It's thought that when filled, the pit would have had a small mound or cairn over the top of it to mark it as a burial ground. Now to Pakistan, where the sophisticated Indus Valley civilization, which flourished four millennia ago in what is now Pakistan and western India, remains tantalizingly mysterious. At its peak, its settlements spanned a vast area. In this jewellery, examples have been found two and a half thousand kilometres away from the main centre of its civilization. Indus cities boasted blocks of houses built on grid patterns and drains that channeled sewage outside of the city walls. Unfortunately, we are unable to decipher the Indus script and archaeologists have had to examine the beads, seals, shards of pottery and other artefacts for insights into one of the world's first city-building cultures. A new study focuses on Harappa, one of the largest and most powerful Indus centres that at its peak reached a population of up to 80,000 people. Researchers examined the chemical composition of teeth from a Harappan cemetery used from roughly 2550 to 2030 BCE. The analysis amazingly showed that the city was a cosmopolitan melting pot. Many of the deceased had in fact grown up outside the area. Many of the outsiders are surprisingly men, buried near women who were native to Harappa. The findings are preliminary, but they suggest that men moved with their brides into Harappa instead of the other way around. Confirmation of these early results, says lead author Mark Keoner of University of Wisconsin, would point to a system where women were powerful. Well, apart from that being a, a really interesting story, I would say... Um, Hold on a second, because that is quite a big step to take. There can be several other reasons for that. But you can't get away from the fact that it seems that men moved into Harappa with their brides as opposed to the other way around. Talking of big steps, well, we've got the making of Europe. DNA sequenced from... Well, it's amazing that you can actually do it from 39 skeletons, but DNA sequenced from 39 ancient skeletons suggests that the foundations of the modern European gene pool was in fact laid down between 4,000 
to 2000 BCE. Yes, in Neolithic times, likely by the rapid growth and movement of populations at this time. Decades of study suggest that two major events in prehistory significantly affected the continent's genetic landscape. From its initial peopling by hunter-gatherers 35,000 years ago in Paleolithic time and the wave of migration by Near Eastern farmers around 6,000 years ago. Genetic signatures of people from the early Neolithic were either rare or absent from modern populations. From the middle Neolithic onwards, mitochondrial DNA patterns more closely resemble those of people living in the area today, pointing to a major and previously unrecognised population upheaval around about 4000 BCE. Now, co-author Professor Alan Cooper from the University of Adelaide in Australia said that what is intriguing is the first genetic markers of this pan-European culture, which was clearly very successful, were suddenly replaced around 4,500 years ago, and we just do not know why. A significant contribution appears to have been made in the late Neolithic by populations linked to the so-called Bell Beaker culture. The origins of the Beaker folk are the subject of much debate. In fact, you heard about them earlier on where we've got them up here in Scotland. Beaker individuals in this study excavated from the Mittelebersal region in uh, Germany showed close genetic similarities with the people of modern Spain and Portugal. Other remains belong to the late Neolithic Unistici culture, attesting to links with populations which are further east. Now, there's a lot to actually take in on that, and I would highly recommend, actually, if you want to learn a little bit more about that, Googling this and trying to have a look at some of the original reports and articles, because it's very difficult to actually sort of drill down into the meaning of this in uh, such a, a short piece. So look for uh, Professor Alan Cooper. He'll point you in the right direction. Now, um, I have to confess, this story did make me chuckle, but it was Heritage Malta surprised guests at the Malta Fashion Week with an exhibition entitled Jewellery Through the Times, showing that Malta's first residents, and I quote, were not aggressive, dirty individuals with unkempt hair, which most people imagine them to have been. Uh, I'm trying to decide whether they're talking about Malta's first residents or the uh, people who are going to the fashion show. Anyway, I'm sure that's libelous. The exhibition was followed by a fashion show of a replica prehistoric jewellery which preceded the main highlight, changing the misconception related to the image of prehistoric people by means of a unique reconstruction. The items, however, featured in the fashion show were replicas of objects worn by individuals who lived on the Maltese islands 5,600 years ago. The artefacts exhibited were discovered at various prehistoric sites and formed part of the permanent display at Heritage Malta's National Museum of Archaeology in Valletta. Heritage Malta also launched a 3D virtual reconstruction of facial features based on one of the prehistoric skulls, from 5,000 years ago, found at the Jagara Stone Circle in Gozo. It revealed for the very first time what one of the early Maltese people looked like. And it was a person who looked very much like us today. So there you go. People 5,000 years ago looked like people just now, but just older. Anyway, I would actually highly recommend going to Malta. It's a, it's a lovely island and there is lots to see and fairly unspoiled as well. 11 
of, yes, we've moved on to Neanderthals now, keep up, 11 of the 13 Neanderthals who lived in northern Spain's El Cidron cave were right-handed, indicating that these cousins of modern humans had a brain structure similar to that of Homo sapiens. This is from a new study published in PLOS One magazine. Researchers among the members of Spain's CSIC Research Council analysed grooves in more than 60 Neanderthal dental pieces. Manual lateral- laterality reflects specialised organisation of the brain, so its evolutionary origin has been the subject of research for decades, so says Project Director Antonio Rosas. Although some of the primates can have a certain degree of preference for the use of one of their hands, strict laterality, a spontaneous preference for the use of limbs located on the right or left side, is only observed in human species. The ability to study 11 Neanderthals, Homo neanderthalus, from the same group was a unique opportunity, but researchers must still determine whether the two other individuals in the group were right-handed or left-handed, since unfortunately their dental pieces, they're called teeth, did not survive. One of the 27 Neanderthals studied around the world so far just appeared to show a preference for use of the left hand. (coughs) Pardon me a percentage comparable to that in modern humans, researchers said. Now, to Turkey, for a very bizarre story, one on a site which actually has continued to be a little bit odd. You might remember the Marmory Metro project, where there have been some incredible finds, including the Byzantine ships. I'm sure you remember that. Well, it consisted of a construction of an undersea rail tunnel across the Bosphorus Straits in Turkey, as well as a modernised rail lines on the Sea of Marmara from Halkali on the European side to Gebze on the Asian side. The archaeological excavations started way back in 2004 to accommodate the project and are still uncompleted, while 40,000 boxes of artefacts are under serious threat as they have just been locked away in sealed depots. Though the 8,500-year-old artefacts from the Neolithic period drew worldwide interest, the excavations were stopped due to lack of funding. About 40,000 boxes of artefacts found in the excavations, which were carried out by the sponsorship of the Transportation Ministry, State Ports and Airport Authority, which is handily being uh, shortened to DLH, were locked in depots and sealed earlier this year. After an initial report, Culture Minister Omar Celik announced that uh, the Transportation Minister Benali Yildirim had said there would be an additional budget allocated to continue the excavations and the objects would be opened and available for research again. However, three months have passed since this announcement. The seals in the depots have not been removed and the excavations have not been restarted. Archaeologists that were dismissed from the work have also not been rehired. The museum authorities said they were currently waiting for the budget to restart for the excavations. DLH authorities, on the other hand, said that they had provided the additional additional budget, but they had yet to fulfil the conditions of the contract. The current conditions of the artefacts is not yet known, since they have been locked in depots for over three months. A protocol made with DLH assured that financial support would be provided until they obtained full results from the excavation. As the discoveries of the artefacts kept the Marmory project from being completed by the end of 2010, that's what happens when you actually excavate such an amazing place, Prime Minister Recep Erdogan said in 2011, and this is what I remember most for, the fabulous quote, 
Is any of this stuff more important than people, he said. Let me think. Now, before I start to go off on one of my rants, let's head off to Peru, where hundreds of years ago, anyone descending the valley towards the site of Cerro del Gentil at the time of the winter solstice would have seen the sun set directly behind an adobe pyramid framed by two long lines of stones converging on the event. The two stone lines are about two kilometres east-southeast of the pyramid and run for approximately 500 metres. According to the researchers, along with the pyramid, the lines form part of a single architectural complex with potential cosmological significance that ritualised the entire Pampa landscape. The flat-top pyramid is five metres high and was built sometime between 650, sorry, 600 and 50 BCE and reoccupied somewhere between 200 and 400 CE. Finds near the pyramid include textiles, shells and ceramics. The stone lines seem to have been constructed around about the 500, to four, 500 BCE to 400 CE, so that's quite a, a wide date range there. About 50 of these stone lines have so far been found in the flat, dry area near the pyramid, with the longest running for about one and a half kilometres. The lines are straight, made out of rocks, unlike the Nazca lines in southern Peru, which were etched into the earth by removing the topsoil, and, of course, include depictions of animals and plants. Interspersed with the lines, researchers have found more than 200 cairns, the largest about 15 metres in diameter. The stone lines and cairns appear to be connected with four nearby settlements, two with large pyramids and one with a mound that would have supported around about a 1,000 people on living on top of it. According to Charles Stanish, a professor at the Kotzen Institute of Archaeology at the University of California, they're saying that we have lines that run to pyramid complexes and that seems to be significant because in the big Nazca Pampa and the Palpa Pampa, we do not find that pattern as obvious as we do here. The team planned to excavate at the Cerro del Gentil Pyramid, searching for more stone lines, more settlements and some more features to try and determine precisely when they were built and why. Now to Bonnie, Scotland. What a lovely place to be. Up to the Orkneys. A research project there, undertaken between 1994 and 2003, examined the Neolithic and Early Bronze Age occupation around the Bay of Firth in the Orkney Islands, just off the north coast of Scotland. That's, of course, dating to around about 3,700 to 2,200 BCE. This resulted in a number of settlements being located and excavated. Although this project is currently being written up, two new sites have now been discovered. One's at the Braes of Smerquoy, the second at Redlands. The Redlands site, a low mound in the southwestern part of the field, has been known for several years and flint, stone and pottery has been collected. Further investigations involved dividing the ground into five metre squares and very carefully picking up all visible archaeological material. An astonishing variety of material was found, including polished stone axes, chisels, flint tools and pottery, and even part of a bronze wristband. Together, the material shows the settlement to have been occupied for well over a thousand years. The second part of the investigation involved a geophysical survey, however, measuring differences in the Earth's magnetic field, and to great surprise, the image of a 5,000-year-old settlement began to appear. Circular houses can be easily seen, and the entire settlement appears to have been surrounded by a large ditch, or perhaps a wall. 
Apart from the Great Wall closing the Nessa Brodgar settlement, nothing like this has been seen surrounding a late Neolithic settlement in Orkney before. That is going to be one of these sites to watch. It all seems to be happening up in Orkney. Now, researchers from the University of Gothenburg have spent many years studying the remains of Stone Age communities in Karlby, outside the town of Falkoping in Sweden. Right now, they're looking for evidence regarding fertilisers that were used during the Scandinavian Neolithic, and the results of their first analysis may be exactly what they've been looking for. Using remains of grains and other plants and some highly advanced analysis techniques, the two researchers and an archaeologist have first identified macrofossils, such as old weed seeds and fragments of grain. The results of the first grain analysis revealed that both barley and wheat were farmed at the site, but they also indicated elevated levels of isotope N15, that's nitrogen 15. The elevated levels may point to fertiliser use in the area 5,000 years ago. I won't give you any clues uh, about what sort of fertiliser they're talking about, but let's put it this way, it's uh, fairly organic. The researchers hope to continue their analysis in the field and in the lab and hope to find many more macrofossils. Hopefully they'll find some weed seeds and this also could help confirm that fertilisers were being used since the type of weeds found in a field can signal whether fertilisers or other methods, I hate to think what that is, were used. Now, an international team of archaeologists has stumbled upon a tomb dating back several millennia in the northern Omani area of Musandam. The discovery was made in the Dibba district uh, and is believed to be 3,500 years old. It's been billed by the Ministry of Heritage and Culture in Oman as among the most stunning archaeological finds of recent times. The site first came to light last year when construction workers building the foundations of a local sports club chanced upon what appeared to be an ancient tomb with some human bones in it. Italian and Greek archaeologists who were brought in by the ministry to study the site have since uncovered the full burial chamber filled with a massive 188, at least, individuals. Scattered around the site were remains of pottery, swords, daggers and ancient jewellery. And using carbon dating techniques, they have managed to pinpoint the site's antiquity to around about 1300 BCE. The chamber itself was an impressive structure with limestone walls, uh, a structure measuring 14 metres long and 3.5 metres wide. By using ground-penetrating radar, the team are now scouring the surrounding area for similar burial chambers or other subterranean structures that may yield more evidence about a larger archaeological find. Little is known about the origins of the ancient communities that settled in the Masundam Peninsula, a rugged region of Oman known for its dramatic massifs and magnificent fjords, although experts point to possible trade ties across to ancient Persia that thrived just across the Hormuz Strait in what is now modern-day Iran. I can attest I absolutely adore the Masundam Peninsula. That's where uh, Rasul Khema is, and many of the time I popped up to Dibba, and it's it's just a spectacular place to be, and little is known about it. So it's really good to see a little bit of work happening there. Now, I did warn you a bit of controversy, so I'll read you the story and see what you think. The prehistoric settlement of Australia has long been considered to be a fairly simple story. Well, 
Well, you'll probably hear me sort of coughing and spluttering throughout this, but I'll, I'll try and get through it. A founding group of about 150 people or fewer made it to Australian mainland 50 millennia ago, 50,000 years ago, and grew to be no more than 1.2 million by the time European settlers arrived in 1788. Debate focused on whether the founding population grew immediately after colonisation or boomed later in the last 5,000 years. But a published paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society uses radiocarbon dating to estimate prehistoric populations and reveals what it says is a more complex plot. Alan Williams, an archaeologist at the Australian National University in Canberra, amassed the most comprehensive radiocarbon data ever put together for the whole continent, analysing 4,575 dates from 1,750 archaeological sites. Then Williams graphed the number of data points for each 200-year period and made the assumption that uh, for each given area, changes in the number of data points from one period to the next were an indication of changes in population size. Big assumption there, but uh, do continue. Williams then fitted a smooth population curve to the data, and according to this curve, a 1,000 to 2,000 founders would be necessary to reach the population that was in place when the Europeans arrived. After the founders arrived, the population would have stabilised at low levels, but crashed during the most recent ice age around 20,000 years ago. To quantify the impacts of the last glacial maximum, you see a 60% reduction in the population, which is quite horrendous, he says. After the Ice Age, population growth rates began to increase in pulses starting 12,000 years ago. A large founding population suggests a potentially controversial notion that the first settlers arrived through deliberate migration rather than being accidentally stranded on the Australian mainland. This is the first time an actual evidentiary data set has been used to construct continent-wide pre-European demographics, he says, which is a significant step forward. So says Sean Ulm, an archaeologist and director of the Tropical Archaeological Research Laboratory at James Cook University. But not everyone has embraced it. Using radiocarbon dates to reflect levels of human activity is not a well-substantiated method Uh, amongst archaeologists at least, so says Peter White, an archaeologist at University of Sydney and editor of Archaeology in Oceania. The quantity and locations of radiocarbon dates measured by researchers at archaeological sites has little to do with past human activity, he says. And Simon Holdaway, an anthropologist at University of Auckland, agrees but thinks that Williams adequately acknowledges these concerns. Holdaway expects a trend towards analysing continent-wide data sets to continue, encouraging researchers to refine them. And I mean, this is where I I agree with uh, Holdaway that as long as Williams is acknowledging the concern, because when you actually look at it, it it sounds like a lot, you know, 4,700-odd radiocarbon dates, but over 50,000 years, you're looking at not very many dates over a vast area as well, and there's quite a few assumptions involved in this. Also, explain what is meant by migration. We have to remember at that point in time, we are looking at Australia being joined to the islands like New Guinea up to the north. So we're not looking at a massive armada 
of people coming in or even sort of people coming in and then heading back going, Australia's brilliant, um, bring your uh, friends and family. I think I'd like to see a little bit more detail on this, and even if it's actually sort of targeted on a specific area within Australia. Anyway, that is my tuppence. What do I know about these things? What I do know, though, is we've made it to the end of the news. But if you want to keep up, well, there's, of course, Past Horizons, www.pasthorizons.com. Needing some tools for the new season as well? Well, Past Horizons has got that sorted as well. Pasthorizonstools.com. And remember, you can always find more at Stone Pages. Yes, the fabulous Stone Pages, news.stonepages.com. Well, thank you very much for listening to the Archaeology News Weekly. Uh, I hope desperately that you will return to us again. Mm-hmm.